a salty sea on Mars. This is Planetary Radio. Welcome, everyone. I'm Matt Kaplan. We once again set sail for the Meridiani Planet, where the Mars Exploration Rover Opportunity has found conclusive evidence of, my goodness, an ancient sea. Our guest played a big role in this discovery. Ken Herkenhoff is the microscopic imager lead. Bruce Betts is back from Texas with his whole family for this week's What's Up. First, though, here's Emily. She's wondering what happens to the twilight zone when you live in a double star system. I'll be right back. Hi, I'm Emily Lakdawalla with questions and answers. A listener asked, could a planet formed in a binary star system have around-the-clock sunlight? There are two ways to have planets in a binary star system. In the first, the pair of stars orbits close to each other. The two stars would behave essentially like one large object as far as the pull on the planet is concerned. The planet would orbit both stars at a great distance. Such a planet would not have around-the-clock sunlight, but residents of the planet would enjoy a spectacular double sun in the daylight sky. One such planet was discovered in October of 2002 orbiting the star Gamma Cephei. The second way to have a planet in a binary star system is if the two stars are separated by a great distance and the planet orbits one of the two stars closely. What would the sky look like in that situation? Stay tuned to Planetary Radio to find out. To admit, I wondered why the United States Geological Survey, or USGS, would have a planetary scientist on staff exploring Mars. The answer came from Ken Herkenhoff. Ken is a Mars Exploration Rover co-investigator with special responsibility for the first instrument that lets scientists get a really up-close and personal look at the Martian surface. We talked just a few days after NASA's momentous announcement about the sea that once existed on the red planet. Ken Herkenhoff, would it be exaggerating from what we currently know to uh, say that uh, some many millions of years ago we could have said surf's up? Well, I don't know about surf, but certainly there was water flowing uh, on the red planet. And, uh, you know, we don't know how deep it was or how extensive, but it looks like it, it might have been a very large body of water uh, and uh, was flowing for some time. The instrument that you have acted as the lead for on the Athena payload package, the microscopic imager, played a big role, maybe the major role, in being able to tell us that not only was the Meridiani Planum wet, or at least this piece of the Meridiani Planum, but it was underwater. That's true. It, it did play a key role, and uh, it's been very exciting. I uh, didn't know what to expect from the microscopic imager before uh, we got to Mars with the Mars Exploration Rovers, uh, but because we had not seen Mars at this resolution before, we expected there would be some uh, 
unexpected uh, discoveries, and uh, sure enough, this was one of them. Now, in talking to some of the geologists uh, uh, who are also on your team uh, in past shows here, they were also very excited to have this instrument. They really compared it to being out in the field with their little pickaxe and uh, their little field microscope. Does that hold for you? Exactly, and in fact, that's how we designed the microscopic imager, uh, to emulate a geologist's hand lens, which is uh, also known as a loop, a jeweler's loop. Uh, it's about a 10-power lens. Uh, so the camera gives us that kind of a view that is is very helpful in interpreting what we're seeing on Mars. Before we get to talking about this evidence, and there is a great article about this uh, on the Planetary Society homepage, planetary.org, let's talk about your background a little bit. You came out of Caltech. You spent time at JPL. You're now with the U.S. Geological Survey on the astrogeology team in uh, Flagstaff. Uh, how is it that the USGS made the transition, the evolution, from putting those neat little markers on top of mountains to uh, helping to explore Mars? Uh, well, many years ago, in the uh, early 60s, uh, Gene Shoemaker, one of the first planetary geologists, put together a uh, group of people and formed a new branch, astrogeology branch, uh, of the U.S. Geological Survey, initially in Menlo Park, and because he loved Flagstaff, uh, moved everybody to Flagstaff uh, soon thereafter. All these southwestern geologists. Yeah, right. Well, at that time, the, the main interest was in the geology of the moon, which they were doing by uh, observing the moon through telescopes. And Flagstaff was a great place to do that. And they had a telescope there that they used to do the lunar geologic mapping in the 60s. So that division is still what you are part of today? That's right. Yeah, we yeah, Gene started up and uh kept it going for a long time. He uh he died in a car accident in Australia uh in in 97, but we've been carrying on uh, in his footsteps. Tragic loss uh Indeed. and and someone who is mentioned frequently on this program and of course uh is the namesake of our Shoemaker uh, Neo Discovery Program, the grant program that the Planetary Society offers. I count myself as lucky to have met him and uh, to spend some time in the field even with him. Uh, he, he was uh, my mentor, and uh, I really miss him. Now, still, I, if I were uh, a member of Congress saying to the USGS, what is in it for this country to be having geologists and planetary scientists study another planet? What can we learn that's going to, to help us here? Well, what I'm particularly interested in is comparing uh, climate changes that we've seen on Mars with climate changes on Earth. And as mm -hmm. you know, climate change on Earth is a, a big issue these days, uh, both for scientists and policymakers. Mars is somewhat simpler than the Earth uh, in that uh, currently, anyway, there is no extant ocean. We don't know that there's any life on the surface, both of which complicate the climate on Earth significantly. Uh, so we're thinking that the um, uh, external climate forcing, the changes in solar luminosity, the uh, changes in the obliquity, that is the tilt of the uh, rotation axis of the planet relative to its orbit, could be seen more clearly on Mars uh, than it is seen on the Earth. So a lot is, the, is really the answer. Well, right? yeah, in, in a couple <laughs> words, that's right. You spent most of the 90s at JPL. We are talking to you uh, back there at the, at the moment because you're part of the science team for the Mars Exploration Rovers. That's right. What was the nature of the uh, work that you were doing at JPL? The same kind of work. I've been uh, working on Mars uh, ever since I started on my thesis. Um, my um, advisor, Bruce Murray at Caltech, and uh, at the time, Larry Soderblom, who was a Fairchild scholar, got me started on the uh, polar regions of Mars, the geology of the polar regions. Uh, and I continued that work and uh, was doing that at JPL, and uh, at JPL was lucky to get involved in the Mars Pathfinder mission. 
and that experience is what directly led to my involvement in MER. So how did you get pulled into MER? Was that uh, Steve Squires doing? The Steve Squires that... asked me to join the team, and of course I was I was happy to join. Now, what does it mean that you were the lead for the microscopic imager? Did you uh, were you involved with the, the physical development of the instrument? Yeah, that's right. And Jim Bell, who's the payload element lead for the PanCam, and I worked together on the camera design. The cameras all share common electronics, uh, so what's what's different is the optics uh, on each camera. And so I, I spent a fair amount of time on the optical design and trying to optimize it uh, for various uh, various things, l- limit the aliasing, that kind of thing. Uh, and then, of course, we were heavily involved in calibration of the cameras here at JPL in 2002. Jim Bell was our guest just a couple of weeks ago on the show. We talked uh, about the PanCam, of course. Was was it a challenge to take this? Very high-resolution camera, particularly compared to what's been on the Martian surface before, and get it to work not only looking off toward the horizon, but also very close up through your instrument? The optical design was uh, helped along significantly by uh, a number of people here at JPL and a a contractor, Greg Smith, in Pasadena. They did a great job designing the optics. We we told them what we were after, and and, uh, they put it together, and obviously, as you've seen the pictures, uh, they did a great job. So for me personally, it was not a challenge uh, uh, because we were uh, assisted by such capable people. Mm. It really seems that this spectrum of instruments that Steve Squires brought together has done an amazing job. I wonder if anybody realized how well all of these would work together, and I'm sure no one realized what incredible data they would return. Well, we did select the payload with uh, synergy in mind, and it it has really paid off. Um, It's a credit to Steve and the entire team to foresee that these instruments would would give us complementary information and that the synthesis of, of the various data sets would be so powerful, and it, it's, uh, it's great to see it working so well. We're talking with Ken Herkenhoff. He is our guest this week on Planetary Radio. Ken, I teased people saying we would get to that evidence for standing or moving water over the surface of Mars, uh, but I think now we're going to have to do it after a break. Can you stay with us for a minute? You bet. We'll be right back after this message with more from Ken Herkenhoff, and we will talk about that salty sea on Mars. This is Buzz Aldrin. When I walked on the moon, I knew it was just the beginning of humankind's great adventure in the solar system. That's why I'm a member of the Planetary Society, the world's largest space interest group. The Planetary Society is helping to explore Mars. We're tracking near-Earth asteroids and comets. We sponsor the search for life on other worlds, and we're building the first-ever solar sail. You can learn about these adventures and exciting new discoveries from space exploration in the Planetary Report. The Planetary Report is the Society's full-color magazine. It's just one of many member benefits. You can learn more by calling 1-877-PLANETS. That's toll-free, 1-877-752-6387. And you can catch up on space exploration news and developments at our exciting and informative website, planetarysociety.org. The Planetary Society, exploring new worlds. Planetary Radio returns with our guest this week, Ken Herkenhoff, geologist, planetary scientist for the U.S. Geological Survey, a member of the astrogeology team, and a member of the science team for the Mars Exploration Rovers. He is the lead for the microscopic imager, which uh, is an instrument that sure paid off 
well as paid off many times over over the last few months of the uh, two rover missions, but especially with this amazing announcement last week. A lot of you guys, enough of you, are now convinced that there was once water on the surface of Mars, not just soaked into the sand up there, but actually at least a pool and maybe a lot more. That's right, and, and it, it has been very exciting lately uh, at Opportunity to see these uh, data come down. Uh, what we found is that there are evidence of uh, what geologists call crossbeds or cross-laminations, and specifically the types of cross-bedding uh, structure that we see uh, is diagnostic of fluid flow. While many of us were fairly convinced of that uh, earlier on, uh, NASA r rightly sent out some of the data for review, outside review, mm. uh, and it was good to hear that, uh, that our terrestrial colleagues agreed with us uh, mostly that uh, the features we're seeing are diagnostic of fluid flow. So not only was water uh, standing on the surface of Mars, but it was flowing enough to cause these, uh, these cross beds. And these crossbeds really are only seen on Earth, uh, have only been formed, so far as we know, by water. The specific type we're seeing, they're smaller. You can also get crossbeds uh, from wind-driven sand. Sand dunes will, will form crossbeds, but uh, they're larger and their, their structure is, is different uh, in detail than what we're seeing here. So uh, that's how we sorted that out. Now, this being radio, we should refer people to some of the actual images, which are, of course, on the JPL Mars Exploration Rover site and also in that article on the uh, planetary.org, the Planetary Society website, uh, because uh, we're talking about this little piece of an image taken by the microscopic imager. It's just maybe, what, three or four centimeters across one of them? And you guys have uh, kindly drawn in some lines to take us uh, lay people and make it easier for us to see some of this cross-bedding. That's right, yes. And uh, what you said is true. Each MI image is about three centimeters, a little over an inch across. Uh, so that gives a feeling for the, uh, the scale here. So these are uh, little tiny ripples uh, at, uh, at the bottom of, uh, of an ancient sea on Mars. And uh, you can see how some of the layers are cut off or truncated by other layers. And that's, that's the kind of diagnostic uh, structure uh, that we needed to uh, interpret this story. Now, while the microscopic imager provided much of this evidence, I don't believe it was the only evidence. That's correct. In fact, it's the, the synthesis of all the data sets that really uh, nailed this down. The, the pan cam, of course, was used to recognize what looked like cross beds uh, from afar and allowed us to go in and, uh, and pick spots where we did uh, even mosaics of, of MI data, and you'll see those on the website as well. But more importantly, the chemical information that we get out of the, the mini-tests, mini-thermal emission spectrometer remotely, and the in-situ spectrometers, uh, alpha particle X-ray spectrometer and the Mossbauer spectrometer, all indicated that there were sulfate minerals in, in such abundance that we had to have you know, an evaporite sequence here. There was just too much sulf sulfate to explain any other way. Does this also uh, help our understanding of the famous, possibly even infamous in the popular media, the blueberries? They maybe were formed by water rather than uh, some kind of volcanic or meteor action? Now, the, the blueberries are interesting. When I first saw them, uh, as soon as we got off the, the rover down in the bottom of the crater, these spherical uh, objects, to me, looked like they were uh, just glass beads, either, as you said, either mm. volcanic, uh, volcanically or impact-generated. But when we got up to the outcrop and started looking at it, particularly with PanCam and MI, we could tell that the distribution of those spherules in the outcrop is more or less random. 
In fact, if it's non-random in any places, it looks like they, they tend to form along vertical fractures, uh, not horizontal beds. If, you, if they were formed in a, in a uh, volcanic or impact event, you'd expect them to be concentrated stratigraphically, meaning that you'd see more of them at certain levels in the outcrop uh, than others. But, but that is not what we see. That supports the hypothesis that they were formed in place uh, after the rock was already formed, laid down. Water percolating through it appears to have formed these concretions of hematite uh, much later. Seems like the concretions in that they, they built up almost like pearls. Right. And, and the, the only problem that I've seen uh, with that in the MI images is after we um, ground one of uh, the outcrop or a couple of places uh, with, the, with the rat, uh, we see these spherules in cross-section. And uh, concretions, you would expect to see some kind of internal structure, concentric structure, something like that. Uh, and in fact, we don't we don't resolve anything with the MI. Hmm. Now that just may mean that the uh, the layering, the laminations are finer than the 30 micron per pixel uh, resolution that we have in the camera, and that that wouldn't be too surprising. You know, they they do look rather um, uniform inside. I bet you'd love to get some of those back here on the surface. And, oh, you bet. <laughs> put them under an electron microscope. You bet. Uh, we're talking with Ken Herkenhoff, planetary scientist, geologist, lead with the microscopic imagers on both of the Mars exploration rovers. So we can now state with great confidence that there was uh, standing or flowing water over the surface of Mars, at least at this one spot. What are the chances that we've just hit the one <laughs> tiny uh, square of Mars out of uh, millions or billions that had this uh, puddle of water? Well, that's a very interesting question. And, and one of the reasons we, uh, we went to the Meridiani site in the first place is that uh, hematite was recognized from orbit mm -hmm. by uh, the test instrument on Mars Global Surveyor. Uh, and so it is a unique place in, in that respect that it exposes the hematite on the surface. The regional geology uh, indicates that this area has been exhumed. That is, it was, it was buried by more rock material, and, uh, which has been eroded away, uh, exposing the surface that we're seeing now. So it could be that there's a lot of this stuff uh, that is still buried or that has already been eroded away, and we're, just, we're on a place that is luckily still preserved. Uh, so as you said, there could be a lot more evidence for uh, water on Mars, more widespread oceans on Mars even, that we just don't know about. With just a couple of minutes left, uh, what are our chances with um, Opportunity uh, still working very well up there on the Meridiani Planum of uh, discovering how broad, how deep, and maybe how old this sea was? Well, the, what we're planning to do is now that we're out of the Eagle Crater that we l luckily landed in and yes. uh, have done a good job of the outcrop, uh, looking at the outcrops there. We're Although, you know, the engineers tell me that they, they meant to land there. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, it was, a, it was a great shot. You know, it's been compared to a, a hole in one, and uh, I, I play some golf so I can, uh, I can appreciate how good a shot it was. Uh, sorry for the interruption, <laughs> but you say we've now climbed out. Yeah, right. We're out, in, and uh, we can uh, see Endurance Crater off to the east about 800 meters away. Uh, and we're going to start driving over there as fast as we can, uh, well, taking some data along the way and uh, trying to understand the, the planes and uh, some features that we see from orbit in the planes. Uh, but once we get to endurance and look in, we're hoping that we'll see much more of the stratigraphic section, that is, uh, many more layers of the, the rocks that are exposed in Eagle Crater uh, in the larger endurance crater. 
Once we get there, we'll decide whether it's safe and whether we want to go down into the crater and examine those in more detail. But even remotely, uh, we're hoping that we'll be able to get a better feeling for how long this, uh, this sea or lake persisted uh, and how much of this uh, evaporite, how many uh, evaporite minerals were laid down. We can see from orbit that there are uh, light-colored rocks exposed in Endurance Crater, but uh, we need to get over there to see them. Well, we wish opportunity luck, and we'll note that you are on Meridiani time, one of many folks up at JPL still running on Mars time. That's right. Your colleagues uh, who are on Gusev time, uh, we don't want to give short shrift to uh, Spirit on the other side of Mars. Any news from there? And uh, it does seem like it's been, if you'll pardon the expression, left in the dust by uh, at least this discovery uh, uh, in the Meridiani planum. Well, we did get uh, lucky at Meridiani. There's no doubt about it. And the Gusev site is more like what we were expecting to see on Mars. And uh, while it has been a little more uh, disappointing scientifically, there have been some interesting results. We've um, found mostly basaltic rocks, but the insides of the rocks that we've uh, abraded with the rat uh, show that there there has been probably at least some water mm. uh, percolating through those rocks. Mm-hmm. Uh, and right now um, we're up against a, a large rock, about a two-meter rock, uh, that is covered with white debris, well, or a coating that appears to uh, at least partly been influenced by water there. So uh, they're they're digging into that right now. And to be honest, it's difficult for me to keep track of what's going on at both <laughs> rovers at the same time. Uh, but they're getting some good results and uh, trying to understand uh, how that coating was formed. And who and who knows what uh, surprises may still be in store from these rovers that are still doing very well up there on Mars. That's right. We're out of time, Ken. I, I hope we can have you back uh, when more of those uh, discoveries, more of that data returns, and talk about the additional work being done between now and the end of the lives of these rovers uh, a long, long time from now. Already, I guess, uh, Spirit is about to outlive its warranty. Right, yeah, well, it's uh, almost the end of the nominal mission on Spirit, and it looks like uh, she's still going strong and uh, no signs of giving up yet. So, uh, yeah, these could be very long missions. Well, let's hope so. Thanks again very much for joining us on Planetary Radio, and we really will look forward to having you back. All right, it's been my pleasure. Thank you, Matt. Ken Herkenoff is a geologist and planetary scientist with the U.S. Geological Survey, part of their astrogeology team, and a very active member of the science team for the Mars Exploration Rovers, the lead for the microscopic imager. We'll be back with Bruce Betts right after this from Emily. I'm Emily Lakdawalla, back with Q&A. Could a planet formed in a binary star system have around-the-clock sunlight? Imagine that the planet is an Earth-like one orbiting close to one of the stars in the binary pair. The other star in the pair would be orbiting far away, as far away as Pluto is from Earth. Our Earth-like planet might orbit its sun star very quickly, but the other star in the binary pair would move much more slowly. So for a part of our hypothetical planet's year, it would pass in between the two stars. At these times, from the surface of the planet, one or the other of the two stars would be up in the sky virtually all the time, and there could be around-the-clock sunlight. Got a question about the universe? Send it to us at planetaryradio at planetary.org. And now here's Matt with more Planetary Radio.
back from Houston with his boys on his knee and his wife at his side. Bruce is with us for What's Up. He is the Director of Projects for the Planetary Society. Bruce, what's up? Well, it's great to be here, Matt. And, and up in the night sky, what is up in the night sky, Daniel? A line of planets. That's right, a line of planets. We went out and looked at them just uh, a few nights ago. Line of planets, don't miss them. Great stuff. You can see all the planets that are naked eye right now. Uh, start with Venus. Really easy to see. Really bright thing off in the west after sunset. Then look below it to the right if you've got a clear view to the horizon and you can see Mercury. If you look above to the left of bright Venus, you will see Mars. Keep going up in a line, as Daniel points out, and you'll see Saturn high in the sky and farther over, starting to be towards the east, Jupiter also extremely bright. Even though I can't, even though the the only one I can really understand is the moon. The moon. <laughs> But I bet you understand the others. I was looking at them last night. I was in line uh, for a movie, and there they were. It was uh, just spectacular, just as you've described. It's true, and the moon's going to go visit with Jupiter next, I believe, Jupiter? shortly. Yeah, Jupiter. I'm going with Jupiter. I could see it headed that way. What else do you have for okay, us? Okay, this week in space history... No, it's daylight right now, Daniel. You can't see it right now. Okay. okay. This week in space history, on March 29, 1974, Mariner 10... Flew by Mercury for the first time, the first and only spacecraft to have ever flown by Mercury to date. Moving on to... Random Space Fact! Most radio dishes are paraboloids. They have parabola cross-sections because parallel rays coming in, radio waves, and it could be radio, light, whatever, they all get focused to one point, which is typically where they put the receiver. Not all of them are that way, and they do fancy things otherwise, but most radio dishes... Paraboloids. It's all photons to me. <laughs> Last week's trivia question, we asked you, what is the shape the, of the trajectory of an object that just has enough energy to escape the gravity of its parent body? Daniel, maybe you can give us the answer. What's the answer to that? The parabola? Yes! <laughs> exactly. If you, had a little, if you had a little more energy than that, then your spacecraft or whatever, asteroid comet, would be a hyperbola. But if you have just enough energy, it's a parabola. Hey, that's the same thing that makes up those radio dishes. Isn't mathematics cool? Matt, how'd we do with the winners? We did well. We had a lot of people with the correct answer. And here is somebody that I don't think we've heard from before. Paul Grimm from Athens, Ohio, said, yes, the right shape that's uh, just enough to get you away from here or any place else is a parabolic shape. And so, uh, Paul, he just said that uh, he's ready for his T-shirt. He just said, make it big. So I guess we'll send him an extra-large planetary radio T-shirt. We have to mention these folks, Karen and Ben Howard. They have uh, entered before from Australia. And uh, here's their answer. Uh, and, of course, this is their response for the shape of a path followed by an object that has just enough velocity to escape the gravity of its parent body. They said a lot of young couples think the answer is eloping. <laughs> eloping. They'll explain it to you later. <laughs> so, how about next week? Okay, next week. Here's your question. What moon of the solar system looks most like the Death Star from Star Wars? Oh, and I know why. And, well, I can't even say that. It, but, well, there's something about the features of this moon that makes it look like the Death Star. And it really does. I mean, that's what I said when I saw it. So how do they enter? 
Go to planetary.org slash radio. Follow the instructions to enter our glorious contest. Win a Planetary Radio t-shirt. Matt, did you have anything you'd like to add? Tell us. Congratulations. Well, I, I was going to ask you if you had any announcements. I do have one. Uh, Please, congratulations. I want to congratulate NASA on the successful flight of the X-43 on the second try. This uh, scramjet, little remote-operated vehicle that flew at uh, above Mach 7, about, what, 5,000? That was it right there. It was just <laughs> It just signaled to us. It came by here. <laughs> It was very fast, so we didn't get to hear it for long. But uh, going more than Mach 7 or about 5,000 miles per hour, which uh, is just a wonderful uh, demonstration of new technology and holds out the promise that someday I'll make the uh, commute from Long Beach uh, to Pasadena, California, in three seconds. Cool! <laughs> it's the stopping that's hard. Yeah. Did you have anything else for us? Uh, I, 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 uh, He's at a loss. Okay. I, How about you, Daniel? <laughs> anything you want to add? Anything you want to mime? <laughs> That's mom. Mom, mom, is, mom is a good mime. Oh, she's in the box. Okay. Oh, she can't get out. She's in the glass box. Oh, she's in a parabola. <laughs> <laughs> My God, a fresh mime routine. <laughs> parabola, parabola, parabola. It's lost uh, all meaning for me now. Mime stuck in a parabolic box. That would what? be an interesting thing to see anyway, wouldn't it? So. <laughs> we better get out of here. <laughs> Okay, everyone. Say goodnight, Bruce. <laughs> Look up in the night sky. Think about... A line of planets. A line of planets. A line of planets. What better than that? Thank you, and good night. That's Bruce Betts, the director of projects for the Planetary Society, and the whole family is here for What's Up. So, there was a sea on Mars. Did any living things call it home? We'll talk about this possibility with astrobiologist Andy Knoll, on next week's Planetary Radio. I hope you'll join us. Thanks for listening.